Matthew chapter 5. Uh, with God's help this afternoon, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 3. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. Matthew chapter 5. I believe I printed for you the entire section of the Beatitudes, just to give you a context. It might be helpful for you this week to read through the whole thing, to meditate on, but also to see that this is just the beginning portion of not only Matthew's, or excuse me, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, but also this block of teaching commonly known as the Beatitudes. And this afternoon we'll be looking at the first Beatitude in verse 3. So then Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's continue reading through the a remainder of the Beatitudes. Um, our text this afternoon will be from verse 3, but I'm going to read the remainder here. Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Going back to verse 3, our particular focus today, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Praise God for his holy word. Well, in the United States, on January 20 or 21, following a presidential election, our country's leaders assemble in Washington, D.C. Many political leaders, even citizens, flock to the U.S. Capitol for the swearing-in ceremony of the nation's next president. The inauguration ceremony has become iconic. I bet you can imagine it. Try to picture it in your own minds. There, the nation's leaders are assembled, sitting on a big bandstand. They're often wearing thick coats against frosty Washington, D.C. wintry weather. And after the swearing-in ceremony and the taking of the oath of office, the new president then gives the inaugural address. The address sets the tone of his administration. He often lays out his vision for the country for at least the next four years. And he lays out goals for his administration. Often the president at this time also tries to help the nation take stock of its own current situation. Every news, every major news station is there to televise the event. 
crowds gathered, not just to see the president, but to hear the president and the words in this inaugural address. Because throughout the years, uh, many well-known public addresses have been sounded from those steps. I'm sure many of you are familiar with them, even if you're not an American citizen. You may remember President Franklin Roosevelt's address in 1933, while the nation was going through an economic depression, Roosevelt uttered these words saying, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, comforting the nation in a time of distress. Or 1961, John F. Kennedy, uh, during the Cold War, he stirringly called for change and sacrifice with these historic words. He says, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Well, this moment in U.S. political events, it's a unique time. It's a unique opportunity for the president to rally the country together. What does it mean to be an American citizen? What's our shared vision of this nation supposed to look like? There, the president delivers his sort of State of the Union address. Well, in our text today, Jesus delivers a kind of inaugural address, a kind of state of the universe address, you could say. Up to this point, Jesus has actually said very little in Matthew's gospel, but now, for the next three chapters or so, he's going to lay out his vision of what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. What does it look like to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And so Jesus begins... As Matthew says here, he opened his mouth and taught, laying out what his reign is going to look like in the lives of citizens in his kingdom. Matthew's gospel here is kind of unique in this block of teaching. Chapters 5 through 7 are what we usually call a Sermon on the Mount. If you read through it, nowhere does it say this is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, That's taken probably from Augustine. 4th century early church father who named it the Sermon on the Mount. But more people, non-Christians even, and Christians, would know of this block of Jesus' teaching probably more than any other, I would say, in the Bible from the Sermon on the Mount. Because this sermon is one of the most popular among Christians and non-Christians. But it's also one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. If we're going to understand what this famous sermon means, we always need to keep in mind what Matthew's entire gospel centers on. It centers on one person, and that is Jesus Christ. To live out this teaching, if you're really going to study it and apply it to your life, to live it out then requires that you have a right relationship with the one who's teaching it. Someone once said that we can learn a lot from preachers and sermons that we may never have met the preacher. We don't know them. We may never meet them. But that's not the case with this sermon and this preacher. This teaching will only change your life when you submit to a sovereign and gracious king, the one who preaches it. Because the Sermon on the Mount enshrines his teaching, his authority, his lordship. So in that way, this sermon is really a piercing section in Matthew's gospel. 
as we go through it, Lord willing, it's going to peel back layers in your life and in your heart. It's going to show exactly where you stand with Jesus. Your heart will be under a microscope to understand, am I really a citizen in Jesus' kingdom? Am I really his disciple? Am I following him because I want to submit to him and his teaching, or am I just following him for the light show, for the bread and circuses? Because Jesus is doing a lot of miraculous things that are fun to watch, and I can benefit in some earthly way. That's what, that's what Matthew, Jesus' teaching here, wants to impress upon your heart. Ask yourself, examine your heart. Am I a citizen of Jesus' kingdom? Where do I stand in relation to him? Our theme this afternoon in our text today is going to start by asking that question. Am I poor in spirit? That'll help us peel back one of the layers of how I stand with Jesus and in his kingdom. Our theme, the poor in spirit. A Christian is poor in spirit. Because we see in the context here of this Sermon on the Mount leading off of chapter 4, that there are many people who are following Jesus, right? We saw that last week. Jesus is going around in all these places in Galilee and all around Judea, and there are many people following Jesus. Uh, They hear of his healing ministry, and so they're intrigued. And they're not necessarily followers of Jesus in the sense that they're genuine disciples. Matthew talks about Jesus' fame spreading over the whole region. Jesus has attracted a large following, many of people who are just going to turn out to be curiosity seekers. And then Matthew, here in verses 1 and 2, shows us Jesus' reaction. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain where he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them couple of interesting things here I think that Matthew points out for us. Did you notice who Jesus leaves behind when he goes up on the mountain? He leaves behind the crowds. That is to say, the curiosity seekers. The people who are only interested in the light show, the healing show. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because Jesus His teaching is really interested in people who are committed to following him. Jesus isn't committed to, he isn't interested in fame. He isn't interested in superficial fans. Jesus is interested in dedicated disciples. Those who have reprioritized their entire life to follow him. Those who have pushed aside anything that would hinder their allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom. That's who this message is primarily for. That's what Matthew's signaling to you right out of the gate. But then he goes on to say something very interesting, just one word or a couple of words really that caught my attention. I wonder if it caught yours too. Put your eyes back there at verse 1. Matthew, did you notice this, mentions where Jesus goes up to. It says a mountain. Why? Well, because important things, it seems, in the Bible, often happen on mountains. You think about that. Mountains are a symbol of refuge. Mountains in the Bible are a symbol of help, of God meeting with his people in a very special way. 
just go back in your mind a little bit to some of the most important redemptive historical events throughout Scripture. Abraham, in obedience to God's command to take his son Isaac to be sacrificed, where does Abraham go? He takes him to the top of a mountain, the Mount Moriah. God appears to Moses in the burning bush. Where? On Mount Horeb. Or you think of the prophet Elijah, or God through Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal. Where? Mount Carmel. Or in one of the greatest, most significant Old Testament events to take place on a mountain. You read of it earlier. Moses leads the people out of Egypt into the wilderness. God needs to prepare his people to live with him. He needs to teach them. He's going to give them a set of teachings on how to dwell with him in the promised land. And so he calls up Moses to receive that teaching where? On a mountain, Mount Sinai, in the wilderness. That's where Moses receives this teaching. And in fact, much of Jesus' earthly ministry, too, is going to take place on mountains. Why? Because it's a deliberate echo of all of God's great redemptive acts in history. Jesus often goes up to mountains to pray. Jesus had just gone through a temptation with Satan, one of which happened on a mountain. Jesus is transfigured before the eyes of his disciples, where? On a mountain. And Jesus' last earthly event takes place where? He ascends up into heaven from a mountain, the Mount of Olives. Matthew is showing you here is that Jesus now in the Sermon on the Mount is delivering an even greater body of teaching, so to speak, than what Moses received on that mount to give to his people. Jesus is the greater Moses, in other words, Matthew is saying, teaching God's people again. Here's how you are to dwell with God as his people. And just as God's people then needed to not only be delivered, but they also needed to be taught, so too... People today, following Jesus, we need to put to death our sin and come to life in Jesus. Because, of course, a person who claims to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, but who continues to live in the same way that they always have, shows that they never actually belong to the kingdom to begin with. That a change of personal identity and purpose is required if you're to enter the kingdom of heaven. I was reminded of thinking about that this week of a story many of you are familiar. I mentioned Augustine already. Augustine of Hippo, the 4th century father. Many of you are familiar with his conversion story. One of the most dramatic, I believe, and famous in church history. Augustine, prior to becoming a Christian, you may know, he lived a very, very decadent life. Augustine, extremely promiscuous, to put it mildly. Augustine was enslaved by sexual passion. He says this of himself. He says, Love and lust boiled within me and swept my youthful immaturity over the precipice of evil desire to leave one half drowned in a whirlpool of abominable sins. And yet, even though he was so wrapped up in that world of the flesh, Augustine also admits that he was so deeply dissatisfied and depressed with life 
And so he plunged into study, trying to find something, find something to give his life true meaning. So he studied, he studied in Carthage, Rome, Milan, great sources of learning in his time, and still his mind was torn between Christianity, which he rejected at that time, and all these great philosophies in his day. And so in his turmoil and his shame and confusion, Augustine says, I was in utter misery. And yet, throughout that restlessness, God was pursuing him until one day, the climax suddenly came. Augustine, in his distress, in his misery, he throws himself down in a garden. And in that garden, he hears nearby this voice of a child saying repeatedly, tole lege, tole lege, which meant or means, take up and read, take up and read. So Augustine hears this voice and he gets up and he picks at random a passage in the Bible, Romans 13, verse 13, which says, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't consider how to gratify the desires of your sinful nature. Augustine says in that instant, with the very ending of the sentence, it was as though a light of utter confidence shone in my heart and all the darkness of uncertainty vanished. Such was the radical change in Augustine's life. God touched his heart and changed his life forever. And he left that former life of sexual license. He even had an illegitimate child by it. And then in a very telling moment, Augustine returns home. And he encounters his his girlfriend, basically his mistress. After this time, and his girlfriend says to him, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. Augustine turns around and responds to her, yes, but it is not I. Why? Augustine had been transformed, been changed so radically by Jesus and the gospel that he had a new identity and purpose. Such was the transformation of becoming a follower of Jesus. His life was changed forever. This is the type of change that must take place, Jesus is saying here, And as he'll say throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, everything that we're going to read in this sermon is going to show you the contrast between the old man and the new, the Gentile and the Christian, between the the hypocrite and the truly righteous person. But I share that story with Augustine to show you that this abrupt and change in life and identity underscores, in fact, what is not happening among many people today, many people who claim to follow Jesus, these curiosity seekers, on the outside they look like Christians, like they have accepted Christ, but inwardly there's no change. There's no repentance. There's no sorrow for sin. They're self-sufficient. They live as they always have. Because many people in these crowds are following Jesus, but there's no change in their lives. Shadowing Jesus but with no experience of the poverty of spirit that he's teaching us in this first beatitude, insists 
that they're not in the kingdom of heaven. What is required to enter the kingdom of heaven is a poverty of spirit. What Jesus is prompting you to ask yourself here, the start of the Beatitudes, put your life under the microscope of Jesus' teaching and ask, is this me? Is this me? Am I one who is truly poor in spirit? Am I one whose life has been completely given over to Jesus? How can I tell? How do I know that? Well, Jesus lays it out for us here in the Beatitudes, and he begins to answer that by teaching us this first Beatitude. Before we dig into it, let's just step back still as we unpack this context. What are Beatitudes? What are Beatitudes? Beatitudes, they're really a summary of the entire character of God's kingdom. These eight statements that we're going to go through, they encapsulate the entire teaching that is to follow in chapters 5 verse through 7. As we read the Beatitudes here, the first four, you'll notice, have to do primarily with myself and God. And then the second four primarily have to do with myself and my neighbor. They're framed on either side of Beatitudes that promise a blessing of the kingdom of heaven. Sort of marking off, I believe, the start and end of the Beatitudes. So these are a great description of what the Christian life looks like. They're evidence of Christ's rule and reign in your life. So your initial reaction to the Beatitudes is going to say a lot about who you are. If you read these words, these Beatitudes, and you fluff them off, I don't like the Beatitudes, I reject this, then it simply means you're not a Christian. But if you have a sincere desire, you say, I am unworthy, yet I still seek after them. That indicates that you are a citizen of the kingdom and you are a child of God. So examine ourselves under the microscope of the Beatitudes. Now, each one of these Beatitudes begins with this word blessed. This is why it's called a Beatitude. Beatitude coming from the Latin beginning of these of these words. We need to understand something of what it, this word means, blessedness or being blessed, if we're to understand what follows. Contrary to popular perception, blessed does not mean you're happy. It's not happiness as we understand it today. Happiness has to do with a very subjective feeling, how I feel. Happiness has to do typically with something devoid of any spiritual basis, really. Based on worldly circumstances or worldly conditions, not any spiritual condition. So I can be happy eating a truly American good donut. I can be happy (coughs) when my favorite sports team wins. I can be happy when I enjoy a really good meal with my family. That's not the same thing as being blessed in terms of what the Bible says. When Jesus uses the word blessed here, he's referring to something objective, something outside of myself. He's referring to a spiritual state. He's talking about not primarily how I view myself, but how God views me. 
To be blessed, as Jesus means, means it here, is to be someone who God views with approval. When God blesses a person, it means he approves of them. He accepts them. So to be blessed doesn't mean I have the nicest vacations. doesn't mean I have the, blessed, the best spouse or the choicest job or the most tantalizing plate of food in front of me. All those are very good things. Blessedness is not therapeutic. It's not just meant to make me emotionally happy. And crucially, blessedness is not doesn't mean that I just have the approval of my colleagues and my friends or my classmates. To be blessed is something entirely different. It's that God smiles upon me, that I have his approval. So again, as we lead into these first of the eight Beatitudes, the question to ask yourself here at the very start is, whose approval do I seek more than anything else? Whose acceptance do I really live for? Who do I really base my life on? I base my life on my own self-acceptance. I base my life on my own accolades and what other people think about me. What makes me subjectively happy. Or do I base my life on divine approval? How you answer those questions is going to determine the course of your life. How you respond to Jesus' teaching here is going to determine... What motivates you? What choices you make? It lays out a perspective unlike anything the world has to offer. That brings us then finally to this first beatitude. Because when it comes to receiving God's approval, the very first characteristic of such a person, Jesus says, is that they are poor in spirit. Verse 3. Let's understand here what Jesus means by poor. What he means by poor is not somebody who's economically or materially in poverty, right? Someone who is homeless or someone who can't pay their bills. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is talking about a spiritual poverty, right? The poor in spirit. And by poor, Jesus also doesn't mean those who are self-despondent, meaning they just hate themselves, very critical of themselves. They find little value in themselves. Jesus isn't talking about people who see zero worth in themselves or those who are simply very introverted those who are bashful that's not the same as being poor in spirit either what it means to be poor in spirit is starting to get at that that poverty that leads to someone begging for help a poverty that drives you to your knees asking for aid the type of poverty that Jesus is talking in here is that personal confession admitting that you're needy. It's so desperate that you have to look outside for yourself. It's an honest realization saying, I cannot, I do not have the means within myself to save myself. I think we're helped to understand what Jesus means by poor in spirit here when we look to other places in the Bible that describe the same thing as being poor and needy, particularly in the Psalms. We sang one earlier, Psalm 109. I wonder if you thought, this is a little depressing. It's sort of supposed to be depressing in a sense. It's because the psalmist is crying out in despair. It's actually an imprecatory psalm. I don't know if you picked up on that. The psalmist 
is pleading out to God for help against his enemies. He's crying out because he's in affliction. And that's saying, I have no need, I have no resources in, my, in myself, God, to save myself from these enemies. He has no refuge of his own. And so he says, help me, Lord. Save me in accordance with your love. I am very poor and needy. Who prays that way? Who prays that way? Only someone who's poor in spirit. This is a man who's spiritually broke. He's reached the end of himself. This is the image that Jesus has in mind when he speaks of the poor in spirit. No refuge but in God. And to acknowledge that you're spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ. To be poor in spirit means you're so deep in poverty that it leaves you pleading for God's grace. In fact, it's more than that, or I should say it's more comprehensive than that. To be poor in spirit means coming to an end of yourself because you realize you have offended God as a sinner. You realize that you stand before a perfectly holy God. And that God, as a just God, is going to judge sin. And you deserve that. Realizing that, you have nothing in yourself that can buy your way into heaven. This is why the tax collector beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because he was poor in spirit. The Pharisee, on the other hand, how does that passage start? It says he trusted in himself, in his own righteousness. Those who are poor in spirit trust in God as their only hope. Just as the poet wrote, many of us are familiar with this hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. This is the attitude of one who's poor in spirit. That's the poverty that's necessary if you're to enter the kingdom of heaven and receive God's acceptance. But it's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult, isn't it, to not want to trust in yourself even a little bit. could be pictured in a story like this. There's a man um, named Andrew Del Banco. Andrew Del Banco was a professor at Columbia University. And he tells a story of going to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting for some research that he was doing. And at this Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, there was a young man, very well dressed, stood up, gave his personal story of addiction. And his story was full of tales of injustices and betrayal. Really, it was stories full of himself. And this young man gave the impression of being a very proud man who needed to blame his problems and blame all of his uh, bad situation on others in order to justify himself. And then Del Banco shares that while this man was speaking, there was a black man in his 40s with dreadlocks and sunglasses and he leans over and says to somebody else you know I used to feel that way too before I achieved low self-esteem 
I like that phrase, low self-esteem. I achieve low self-esteem because pride, as Del Banco notes, is always the enemy of hope. Pride is always the enemy of hope. You and I are worse off than we think, and we can do less than we think to save ourselves. Someone who's full of pride has absolutely no need for a savior. Until you are poor in spirit, you cannot receive God's grace. Someone who lacks poverty in spirit and is full of himself, he's puffed up with pride, puffed up with self, and therefore has no need of grace. He's already full. It's like somebody whose hand is so full of dirt that he can't receive gold. People are like bottles of liquid. You have to be poured out first before you can be filled up with Christ. Someone who's puffed up in pride and filled with pride has no need then, no ability then, to receive God's grace. But also, until you're poor in spirit, Christ will not be precious to you. A self-satisfied person is only going to see their own wants, An obsessed person is only going to be obsessed with themselves, not with Christ. He's so content walking around in life with his own filthy, smelly, dirty rags that he has no need. He refuses the pure, clean robes of Jesus' righteousness. Christ will not be precious until you're poor in spirit. But also, until you're poor in spirit, you can't even grow spiritually. Right? Disciples of Christ never leave Jesus' feet because they know their need for his teaching. They never outgrow Christ. In fact, there's a sense in which we will never outgrow this first beatitude, will we? Because we're always realizing our poverty in spirit. We're always pleading for God's grace. The more that you grow as a Christian, the increasingly aware you will be of your own sin. And as you're aware of that own sin, you're aware of your own need to be cleansed of it. You're aware of your own ability, your own inability to cleanse yourself. You're aware of your own need for Jesus to step into your life to teach you. You're aware of God's grace and mercy that has to be poured out. The more you become a Christian and walk with Jesus, the more you know your need for that. That's the only way you can grow in grace is by being poor in spirit and driving yourself back to Jesus' teachings. Every teaching that Jesus is going to give in the Sermon on the Mount in these three chapters is going to drive you back to this first beatitude to make you just aware of how poor in spirit you are. The only way to truly know Christ and to receive the kingdom of heaven then is to acknowledge your spiritual poverty. That's a message that this world doesn't get. Does it? The world around us is constantly teaching us, believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. You're unstoppable if you just believe yourself. Self-confidence is the way, is the key to creating the life you desire. That's what the world is teaching. Let me tell you, no. No, it's not the way to creating the life you desire. Believing in yourself only puts you on an endless rat race, always trying to get self-dependency and never reaching it, 
always searching for other people's acceptance and never finding it. But Jesus' teaching, however, liberates you from all of that. No more rat race. What Jesus is promising here, you here, is God's acceptance. And not because of anything you bring, but only by recognizing your poverty. It's only by surrendering, surrendering yourself. Acceptance comes not from resting in yourself, but resting in Jesus. You must be spiritually poor to be accepted by God. Notice this is also what Jesus is going to teach throughout his ministry. Being spiritually poor is necessary to be accepted by Christ. In fact, this is what Jesus came to do to preach this message. In Luke's gospel, uh, after Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, uh, he's, we, we read more about his teaching ministry immediately after that. In Luke's gospel, after Jesus uh, is, is in the wilderness, he returns to Galilee. He's teaching in the synagogues. And Luke recounts for us how Jesus came to his hometown of Nazareth to teach in the synagogue. And there, when he begins his public ministry, Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah, chapter 61, which reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Isaiah's day, the poor were the exiled people of Israel who had remained faithful and who looked to God alone to save them and bring them into his kingdom. They were always the people to whom Jesus comes. So what's the consequence of spiritual poverty? Jesus' message is simple. God now approves of those who acknowledge their poverty and their reward is nothing less than the kingdom of heaven. That's the reward, the blessing that Jesus promises here. Look again here, verse 3. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs, that is the poor in spirit. The reverse is also true. If you aren't poor in spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice Jesus also says here, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, that's a present, that's a present implication for being in Christ and his kingdom. Today, it is theirs. The poor in spirit are, are accepted by God now. Their membership in the kingdom of heaven is now. The spiritual blessings they receive are now. They are seated in the heavenly places now. It is, though, also a promise for the future. Because you see, the, the, the world, as I said, they, the world esteems the successful, the top dogs, the rich, the powerful, the people of, at the pinnacle of power and influence. We Christians are weak now. We're inadequate now. But in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, there will be a great reversal. Jesus promises that the first will be last and the last will be first. Those at the top now will be at the bottom of the, in the life to come. To live in God's kingdom is to live in that countercultural paradigm. And so Charles Spurgeon said it well, the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. That leads us 
to a very practical question I hope you've been kicking around in your mind as you've been thinking about this text. And that is, how do I become poor in spirit? I want to receive Jesus' teaching. I want to know that I'm, that I'm a citizen of the kingdom. What can I do? And the answer is very simple. The answer is not to focus on yourself. The answer is not simply to condemn yourself. The way to become poor in spirit is not to cut yourself in pieces. That is to say, poverty in spirit isn't ultimately found in concentrating on yourself. It's found by looking outside of yourself to God. Poverty in spirit is found by doing what these disciples are doing, by sitting at Jesus' feet, by following Jesus, hearing his words, by being around him and imitating him. The more you do that, the more you will appreciate Jesus' words. And the more you will appreciate even the, the disciples' words, when later on they will say, Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The closer you walk with Jesus, the more helpless you'll feel on your own. The more you walk with him, the more you'll see the futility of your own resources and the the riches of Jesus and his grace. In fact, you cannot look to him in faith and not feel the bankruptcy in your own soul. The way to poverty in spirit is to look on Christ in faith to know that poverty of spirit and confess it to God and to receive his mercy. God has bound himself to show mercy to the poor and the crushed in spirit. So the psalmist says in Psalm 34, it says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. As we come to a close, I, I want to share with you, you know, sometimes people ask me if I go back to the States or something, they'll say, you know, what is it like to be an American living in China, living in Shanghai? What's different? I want to say to them everything. Everything's different. Uh, we live on opposite side of the globes. We speak totally different languages. English, we use letters. Chinese uses characters. We use different electrical currents. Uh, We use different payment systems. China uses Alipay and WeChat. In the U.S., we use cash and credit cards. You know, even the fire, calling the fire department is different. In the U.S., we call 911. Here it's backwards, 119. Shanghai is an international city. Many things are familiar here to Westerners, to foreigners. But after living here for many years, settling down is hard. One of the struggles that every foreigner needs to go through is learning to live with the differences. We do that while still remaining our own, uh, retaining our own personalities, our own national identities. And the more you're conscious of your own national identity, the more conscious you'll be that you are a resident alien here in this country. So it is living as a Christian in this world. There is much that is familiar to us living in this world as Christians. But if we're truly citizens in God's kingdom, then we ought to stick out. 
We ought to be like round pegs in square holes. We should look and sound different from the people around us. Our priorities and our identities will be fundamentally different. If you aren't living discernibly different in any way at all, then it may may very well be evidence that you're not a citizen in God's kingdom. If you are a Christian, you must always be conscious of your alien residency in this world. In fact, to not be conscious of that is to mean you might be living for something else. We must live intentionally as countercultural Christians in this world. And Jesus here is laying out for you in the Beatitudes his vision for that kingdom life. Jesus is teaching you in this sermon what fundamental differences exist between Christians and non-Christians. Right at the beginning of the most famous sermon in the world, Jesus contradicts the world's message. And he says, Blessed are not those who are full of themselves and rely on themselves, but blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The only way to receive the kingdom of heaven is to acknowledge your spiritual poverty. That's not going to win you a lot of approval. It's not going to win you a lot of accolades in this world. But it is going to win you God's blessed approval. And that's what matters. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer and thank him for that.